0: Hello everybody, I'm Matt Wolford, and this is Triumph Connects.
1: I'm always the eternal optimist, but I think my brain is pretty hardwired to realism. Uh, and sometimes you've got to look down the tunnel, and the tunnel doesn't have a light at the end of it. Putin now has taken this anti-Westernism, therefore, to a much greater height than I've ever seen before. The only parallel I could think of, basically, is Stalin. What Putin is doing isn't just attacking Ukraine, he's attacking the very notion of what it is to be the West.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this special edition of Triumph Connects. You know, if you would have told me at the beginning of 2020 that in the next three years, we would experience a global pandemic that would kill millions of people, and that we would see a major war on the continent of Europe, I think that I would have said that you're overly pessimistic about our future. Now, when I'm sitting here recording this on Thursday late afternoon, it really seems almost like we're staring into a kind of abyss that if it were to happen would make the last three years seem, I don't know, not great, but not as bad as it could be. We've put this episode together in order to try to cover some of the larger issues that are thrown up by the Russian invasion into Ukraine. At least from where I sit, this just seems like... A slow motion tragedy of epic proportions. First and foremost, just the suffering that we see every day on the television from the people in Ukraine is enough to break your heart. In addition, you know, or we should know, that the sanctions that we're now imposing on Russia will hurt most people who have no say in what their government does. And the anguish that that will cause is also part of this giant tragedy. And it also feels like we're sliding toward something that we don't know exactly what it will be, but it is frightening enough to want to kind of stop the slide, and I'm not sure how that can happen. And like most tragedies, it's been fueled by miscalculations, misunderstandings, a giant amount of hubris, a willingness to unleash violence on civilian populations, and a callousness to human suffering on one side that seems incredible, but also it's been marked by bravery, it's been marked by defiance, it's been marked by unity, and perhaps in this we can see the start of something that might, just might, be good that comes out of this conflict. I'm joined in my conversation today by Professor Mick Cox, Mick is the founding director of LSE Ideas, and he was the director there between 2008 and 2019. Mick is a renowned scholar of international relations. In his academic career, Mick has focused first on the Cold War, the evolution of the Cold War, the end of the Cold War, the post-Cold War order, as well as being an expert on U.S. foreign policy. We recorded this conversation yesterday, Wednesday, the 9th of March, And in today's world, who knows, much of what we might have said uh, is no longer relevant, although I I certainly hope that it will be. And I think that our focus on larger issues surrounding the war and how it will affect the international system will be relevant, uh, actually, for a very long time. And so, my friends, without any further ado, I bring you my conversation with Mick Cox on the current situation in Ukraine and its implications for all of us. So, Mick Cox, welcome to Triumph Connects.
1: Great to be here, Matt, once again, with all my friends from Triumph.
0: Yeah, I should say welcome back, because it's been about two years ago when you first uh, were on and we were talking about uh, canes.
1: We were. Now we're talking about something rather different.
0: Yes, exactly. Rather different. So um, thank you again for coming on at, at such short notice. Um, obviously, the, the topic here is uh, the war in Ukraine. And uh, what I'm going to hope to do is get us to concentrate on some questions that perhaps our answers uh, to those questions won't be completely uh, untimely in about two or three days. So we're going to start to take a look, hopefully, at some broader uh, kind of questions. And I I guess I want to start out um, by just the question, you know, a week or so before, even two, three days before the invasion started. I I talked to so many smart people who just assured me over and over again that, you know, invasion wasn't going to happen. Now, at the same time, the U.S. intelligence were saying, look, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And people were saying, uh, I think you'll probably remember that they were being critical of the U.S. and they were being kind of uh, unduly uh, kind of pessimistic about the future. And I guess I wanted to ask you, why do you think so many people got the prediction wrong about the invasion?
1: Well, uh, of those many smart people you're, you're talking about, Matt, I, I'm afraid I'll have to include myself amongst them, maybe a little less smart than I thought I was. A little modesty maybe is, is, is in order here. I did say, on the one hand, but on the other, I, I kind of gave the English answer. I thought it might happen. I thought it wasn't ruled out. I didn't I did believe the intelligence. And I did believe that Putin had war plans, and I did know with others that he was accumulating enormous numbers of troops and material aboard. So I didn't rule it out. I just thought, ultimately, he could get so many of the things he wanted in Europe in relation to NATO, in relation to Ukraine, and in terms of his relationship with China. He could have got those things anyway without going to war. And let's be honest, if you go to war, as, as the United States and others have found out over the last 20 years, It's a very dangerous thing to do, as we found out over Iraq and even over Afghanistan. So why take the chance? Why take the risk? And I think that was the first reason we got it wrong. We just didn't think he was an adventurer. And he's turned out to be more adventurous, if you wish, than we had ever, ever believed. I think the second reason why we we got Putin wrong. You know, we did read his speeches. We did say we did read what he said about Ukraine. We did know that he was increasingly repressive. We did know that he was increasingly isolated. But let's be perfectly honest, in the end, we really did get him wrong. We just didn't think that this apparently smart, balanced, um, careful former member, maybe current member of the KGB, FSB, whatever you want to call it, would, would, would take that kind of risk. But we simply got that wrong in his own mind and maybe in the mind of some of the military and some of those people around him this was the time to do it this was the moment the moment may never come again they kind of maybe read what happened in afghanistan as a sign of american weakness they thought that economic dependency of the europeans on energy would make the europeans keep quiet and i'd say Lastly i think they probably many of us experts thought that china would effectively restrain putin now the china relationship in all this is really quite complicated as i'm discovering but i think we all thought that china although a supporter of russia both before and during the war let's be honest nonetheless would be much more cautious and would not want to jeopardize its relationships with the europeans wouldn't want to be seen allied to a war, because that doesn't look great for China. But in the end, China, whether it encouraged it, I don't think so. Did it give a green light? We just don't know. But it certainly didn't do enough to stop Putin.
0: Yeah. I mean, I want to unpack a lot of those things that, that we've you've just covered there, because I, oh, there's so many interesting points. But let's go back to the intelligence for a second. I don't know about you, and and maybe I'm just too much of a pessimist, but when I was reading the U.S. intelligence coming out, my feeling was that they did have this intelligence, but that there was a strategic, I don't know, maybe a political win-win solution here for, for the U.S. They engaged in this kind of information warfare, That they, they, they made public their intelligence about the gathering, they kept warning that there was going to be an invasion, and then if it didn't happen, the U.S. was in a position to say, well, our sharing of the intelligence worked, he backed away. And if it did happen, they could say, see, we were right all along. So no matter what happened, the intelligence agency in that sense, or the U.S. writ large, was in a position to kind of reap the rewards of hindsight uh, prescience. Do, do you do you think that strategic analysis holds up?
1: It's a very interesting. I actually kind of took it almost the opposite direction. This, again, with me over well, you know, kind of reading Putin as a much more, you know, I thought what Putin would do is say, Here's the Americans. Here's the intelligence uh, giving out to everybody for a few days, and maybe even going back earlier, saying they're going to invade. They're going to invade. You know, the Russians, literally the Russians are coming. And I thought what Putin would do would then not come, not invade, and then turn around and say, ah, yet again, American intelligence has been proven to be totally faulty, cannot be trusted, as it could not be trusted back in 2002, three prior to the Iraq war, and therefore Russia would score, or Putin would score, a major diplomatic kind of victory. That's the kind of, I know it's all very jagged thinking, Matt, but nonetheless, that's the way I thought it. The other thing is, I just—I didn't disbelieve what they were saying, but there's an enormous difference between having a war plan and looking at other people's war plans, because countries are always planning wars. After all, the United States planned all sorts of wars, even against poor little Canada to the north. They never did it now i'm not saying america and canada is the same thing as russia and ukraine don't get me wrong out there but there's one thing about war plans there's nothing doing it and uh, so you know there is a there is a kind of gap between all the build-up and then going ahead and doing it and i think we thought i thought he would build build up use coercive diplomacy to the nth degree force major change within ukraine divide nato in the process prove that the Americans always got their intelligence wrong. And then, you know, you just reap the diplomatic rewards. The truth of the matter is that's not what happened.
0: Yeah, you might be right. I mean, that seems plausible to me. I guess the fact is we'll, we'll never really know uh, for sure. But if we think about and just shift the question a little bit, talking about Putin's strategic objectives, I don't know about you, but I, I really become uncomfortable when the um, commentary, the common commentary you hear often is, you know, Putin's a mad person, he's lost his mind, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. This, I think, is very dangerous thinking. So I, th- I think we might not agree with his objectives. But once we understand his objectives, we, we may be able to predict his behavior. So in this case, I think in some ways, you just laid out his strategic objectives before the invasion and you made i think a really good point and this is why so many people thought that he wouldn't invade that he could he could obtain those strategic objectives without the invasion and you know uh, as as hitler said uh, making war is like opening a door into a to a dark room you never know what you're going to find so it's inherently kind of risky to 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 do this so my i guess my question is did we get his objectives wrong? I mean, what, what are his strategic objectives at this point? And, and, and are they kind of, do they even have kind of face validity?
1: Oh, firstly, on the mad question, if I could deal with that one, Matt. It was a very famous American president, Richard Nixon, who once said, if you sound mad, sometimes act mad, then people take you seriously and they may back off. In terms of calling Putin mad, I think that's very misleading. Actually, I think it's dangerously misleading. Uh, It also avoids actually analysing what his objectives are. Even if we didn't agree with him, agree with the idea that he was going to go to war, we still got to analyse the reasons why he's doing it. The old LSE motto, find out the causes of things. By the way, there's another leader in the world they constantly call mad. He's the leader of North Korea. And By the way, North Korea has played quite, quite a remarkable diplomatic game with nuclear weapons over the last 20 years to preserve the North Korean regime. And some people still, unfortunately, call him mad. No, there is, there, there is in a sense, a, a sanity about appearing to be mad, or at least there's rationality behind the madness, if I can put it in those terms. Now, where we are today and how, therefore, after the event, which we didn't predict, how, therefore, do we understand what Putin is trying to do? Let's start off maybe with a first qualifier, Matt. He may have made, made a major miscalculation. We've got to start there. You know, he may have taken decisions in his own mind for rational reasons, but nonetheless, he may have made a major strategic miscalculation. He may not have done, however, we've got to keep that in mind as well. Perhaps he even knew that this was going to take much longer, that it would be far more brutal, but in the end, it would subdue Ukraine. Now, what are his objectives in the terms which we should really try to discuss? I think three. One, first and foremost, like any dictator, like any regime, to maintain himself in power at home. I think that's the first and most fundamental thing he is seeking to do. I don't think he's under any threat at the moment. He wasn't under any threat before. And maybe after this, he might or might not be under threat. We've got to be very careful not to overestimate. You know, the, the degree of dissatisfaction with the with the Putin regime within Russia. Wishful thinking is not a place for analysis. Nonetheless, I think he's very keen and he knows that in the past he's used war, you know, either the threat of or the reality of it to consolidate domestic domestic position. He did it with the Chechen War, he did it, by the way, with Ukraine in 2014. And when there's a war going on out there, then you know there's a there's a very good chance your regime's gonna be as long as you win the war. <laughs> That's the crucial thing. There's a very good chance You're going to consolidate your power at home. And I think that's part of it. And it's certainly true of a dictatorship. They, they like wars externally because that, in a sense, does have some uh, net positive consequences, We can put it in notes. Secondly, from everything we now know, he really doesn't think that Ukraine should exist. I mean, it's really quite remarkable reading of imperial Russian history, of Soviet history, and indeed of post-1991 history, but clearly and fundamentally, he doesn't think Ukraine ought to exist. And I suppose he thinks that by invading and smashing and essentially destroying a large part of Ukraine, he's doing that already, infrastructure, all the things that make a state function, he's already destroying those. And that's going to take a huge time for Ukraine to ever recover. Even if he doesn't win all the battles in the field, he can probably go home and say, Ukraine can never do anything ever again to anybody. You know, it's not a failed state. I'm not going to call it that, but it's going to be a hugely weakened state. And He's already achieved that objective, which puts it rather brutally. But this is a very, very brutal war fought by a person who I do not think is mad. So by doing that, he therefore renders Ukraine much less of a challenge to Russia. It's a challenge not in this military sense, but it's a challenge in the sense of, if it's a functioning example of a successful liberal democracy, you know, which wants to kind of join Europe, then that may be a challenge to his own regime at home and also to his allies. Remember, who's in this war? It's not just Russia; it's also Belarus. It's also other, other. You know, so he's got to cons- he's consolidating. So that's the second part of it. I think the third part of it, and again, we don't know how far he's going to go. This is the next thing. This is the really dangerous part of it, Matt. He probably thinks that he wants to really redraw the European security architecture. He's been saying that, you know, just read what he says. And not only do not recognize Ukraine as a nation state, it's simply a non-state in that regard. It's historically part of it. Maybe we have to take what he says. He really does want to redraw the whole security architecture in Europe. He wants to push NATO back and he wants to weaken Europe from within and frighten Europe in, in many, many ways. Now, is he going to achieve those objectives? That will depend very much on how the war goes on the ground, Ukrainian resistance, what America does, what Germany does, which is really quite extraordinary, what the EU does. So it's all up for grabs. We can't make any hard and fast predictions in the middle of an ongoing situation like this war, Man.
0: Let me let me just take a step back because I was going to ask you know what does what does victory look like in in Putin's mind right now and I, I I'd like to come to what you think victory looks like in Ukraine's mind right now or Zelensky's mind you know but but uh, but I want to I want to go I want to pick up something that you said about you know um, Ukraine's existence its legitimacy to exist as an independent nation and I think there seems to be as time goes on, an even more and more dangerous shift in the storyline here, in the narrative. So before the invasion, or a couple of days before the invasion, it was all about security issues, you know, land compromises, missile placements, NATO status, et cetera, et cetera. These are all things that are hard but can be negotiated. Right? You can say, okay, well, we're going to give some on this security issue so we can get this land compromise, and we're going to say these kind of missiles can't be anywhere, but these kind can be with inspectors, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems to sh- have shifted and shifted more and more through time away from a, a issues like this to questions of, of, of pure identity and value. So Putin has made the conflict about the identity or lack thereof of Ukraine, right? Ukraine has has made, and Ukraine has made this about their identity as a kind of westward facing Ukrainian state. Uh, And the liberal democracies kind of have made it about the identity of the world order and who we are. Uh, And once it's about these things, I don't know how, it just seems to be. Really hard to start to compromise about this. So if if we think you know if we if we keep it focused on Russia and Ukraine and we say okay Russia and Ukraine sit down at a at a peace talk somewhere, what is there to, for them to talk about in this sense? Because they 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 have these kind of fundamentally different ideas about the identity of the state. It's very hard now at this point to see Zelensky or anyone else saying okay well a win for us is that. Russia take over the Donbass and we become neutral. No, because that means that it's not really a state, and it's really hard for, I think, for me to say Russia withdraws in some ways and leaves an independent state in place because, after all, Putin says it doesn't, it doesn't, it isn't really a state anyway. And if, and in fact, he's explicitly said if they don't stop messing around, they're going to lose their privilege to, to their own sovereignty. So I, I just wonder, does this give you pause? I mean. Should, should our diplomats and governments, instead of engaging in these kind of identity talks, should they try to get it back to talking about the issues on the ground in Ukraine?
1: Well, you know, the fog of war, Matt, the fog of war, as Klausowitz once put it, but not only the fog of war, the uh, politics of war. And once war is engaged, emotions rise. And understandably so. Through the First and the Second World War, Cold War. Emotions rose and people lose sight of maybe that the ultimate purpose is gonna be some settlement or some peace deal at the end of it. Don't think anybody's talking about that at the moment. As you, it looks from the point of view of Ukraine and the, President Zelensky said this yesterday to the House of Commons, to be or not to be, to quote Shakespeare. You know, they've, they've, for therefore from the Ukrainian's point of view, it's not just about identity, which you point out quite correctly, it's also about survival. Can they actually survive? You know, not only survival of Ukraine, but survival of Zelensky, because we know there are squads out there, we're told anyway, there are squads of assassins out there trying to kill him because he's become such an important and potent symbol, almost Ch- Chilean in a, in a strange way, but he's become a symbol really of Ukrainian resistance. When he said he wasn't gonna leave, that therefore was an important turning point in the war as far as I can see. So it's, it has identity dimensions, It has a question of survival and also about the war leader himself, because he's now playing a very crucial part. It's a very Churchillian kind of series of references he made yesterday as well. But the war is increasingly making bitterness on all sides. There's no doubt about that. And therefore, making any degree of peace at the moment, and I'll be very careful the words I choose, is going to be exceedingly difficult. While cities all over Ukraine are being pounded, while civilians are being killed, while hospitals are being destroyed, while infrastructure is being annihilated. And when we're moving now towards one and a half, 1.752 million refugees in Europe, you know, and if Russia continues with its military campaign, and so far we've seen no indications can pull back from the campaign, the only thing holding it back, frankly, uh, isn't China (laughs) and but it, it but is ukrainian resistance and we know it's been very fierce on the ground i think thousands have died on both sides by the way i haven't seen the figures but i'm aw- awful to say it but no doubt thousands have died both fighting soldiers as well as civilians it gets bitter and bitter and i think the language we're going to hear coming out of ukraine is going to be increasingly bitter and directed against russia i hope not against russians Because so many of the people who live in in Ukraine, by the way, not just in eastern Ukraine, are Russians. By the way, Zelensky himself speaks better Russian than he speaks Ukrainian. Well worth remembering. You're quite right to make that point, though, Matt, about it started with one thing and is shifting increasingly to something else. And the two other things that worry me deeply, as well as what you've already said so rightly, is one, this whole question of nuclear weapons You know, I was there in Ukraine, actually, in 94, when they actually decided to give up the nuclear, their own nuclear arsenal. So there's going to be a lot of people in Ukraine and in other countries in the world, by the way, who start asking themselves the question, well, hold on. I don't have nuclear weapons. Perhaps I should get them to guarantee my security. Because if I denuclearize or I remain non-nuclear, and I think there's a very big worry I've got again, another unintended consequence of this war could be to, a big challenge to the non-proliferation regime around the world. I don't think Ukraine will be able to get. Them. indeed, I think it'll be very very difficult, not impossible. I don't think they should, but nonetheless you can understand why. That worries me very, very deeply indeed. I think the second thing I'd say and again in addition to what you've said about identity right, it's a question we cannot be seen to lose. In a way, it's not just Ukraine and Zelensky who, you know, by the way, fought magnificently, one has to say that, uh, but, you know, it's also the notion of the West. You know, when you start seeing what you saw yesterday in the House of Commons, when you start hearing President Biden's speech, when you see a very middle-of-the-road German Social Democratic Chancellor of Germany <laughs> and the whole EU lining up, it's almost actually become, this is the West, our definition of the West, has to be defeated. What Putin is doing isn't just attacking Ukraine, he's attacking the very notion of what it is to be the West. And again, that makes it increasingly difficult to withdraw. In the same way, for Putin, it's going to be very, what is his exit strategy from this without it seeming to be a defeat? And that's going to be a huge diplomatic conundrum on both sides.
0: Yeah, and this is what, again, what worries me is, to the extent we can make the argument now, Putin can't lose, he, he has to be able to claim victory in some ways. The Ukrainians can't lose because if they lose, it's an existential threat, it's, their, it's everything for them. And if the West can't lose because it's become, as you said, part of our uh, uh, kind of defense of our identity, if none of the sides can lose, then it's very, again, and, and, and what they can't lose is, is not, you know, we can't lose this bridge, or we can't lose this uh, province, or we can't lose this kind of sense of our identity, then I, it's so hard at that point to say how compromise is going to happen across those three parties or three kind of players in this game that can't afford to lose.
1: Uh, absolutely right, Matt. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always the eternal optimist, but I think my brain is pretty hardwired to realism. Uh, And sometimes you've got to look down the tunnel and the tunnel doesn't have a light at the end of it. And at the moment, there is no light at the end of this particular tunnel. I suppose, let's just take one possible scenario. China does not abandon Russia, and I don't think it can or it will. As as, As the foreign minister of China said very recently, you know, our relationship is rock solid. And last year, the same foreign minister said, This is better than an alliance. We're better than allies. Um, But China's been put, I think, in an extraordinarily difficult, awkward position. One part of its own making, I have to say, but we'll come on to that in a while. Maybe in this uh, terrible situation we're confronting, given the analysis you've provided so brilliantly, if you don't mind me saying so, nobody can lose, therefore, how do you get out of it? Maybe the deus ex machina in all this is going to have to be China. Um, now will China want to perform that role can it perform that role and even if it does perform that role is anybody going to trust it given its close relationship with Russia anyway um, so that is at least one possibility oh the other thing put it rather bluntly Matt that you know the costs on both sides are going to become so huge both for the Ukrainians and for the Russians and for the Russians that some kind of stalemate will have been arrived at. And when that stalemate moment arrives, then you might start to see feelers being put out on both sides. We don't see it at the moment, but we might see it in a week or two, maybe a month's time. I just don't know. Yeah.
0: After enough blood has been let on both sides, maybe they just get, get weary. Uh, well, but that's a very... Sad thing to hope for, I guess. Let's let's think about China for a sec, because I I I do think this is very interesting. Not only, by the way, one point of optimism is they also have China had been building very close relations with the Ukrainians as well. Um, So, what I don't understand is is isn't the if if we if we go back into the game of you know big power international relations, doesn't Russia really aren't they running a very dangerous game here of becoming a kind of captured state to China. I mean, their, their, their economy is one-tenth the size, one-eighth the size. I mean, it's, it's very much smaller. Uh, Russia is a bit of a petrol state. So it seems to me that you know China has an interest in stability, it always has been. It's how they make their money. Um, and Russia is a petrol state that benefits from chaos, because it, at least potentially it could, if it could sell its uh, oil and gas at a much higher price. Now, why wouldn't, why wouldn't China turn to Russia and say, okay, okay mate, you, you've best friend, right? They call each other best friend. All right, best friend. You've driven yourself into a corner and crashed. We'll help you get out, uh, but here's what you're gonna do for us. Do you think that China might be involved in this as a, a, with Russia as a, as a potential, as a kind of way to create dependence?
1: Well, you, you raise a very good point. Actually, with the previous program I did to this one, I was actually asked exactly the same question by the interviewer. And I think it was a guy called Bill Browder you may have heard of. He's been involved very much in Russia over many, many years. And uh, he, he said, well, the outcome of this war, this is Browder's point of view, the outcome of this war is going to be in the end, Russia can do nothing else other it's going to be so isolated from so many, from the West, from the United States, the pariah state, has nowhere else to go but China, more and more. It's already gone close to China anyway over the last 10 years particularly last year, by the way, even more so, economically as well as strategically. that it has nowhere else to go but China. And then when you look at the balance of power between China and Russia, what do you see? Well, you've already indicated it, Matt. The Chinese economy is, what, 10 times, 9 times bigger than that of Russia. Russia is more or less entirely dependent on energy, uh, oil and gas. It doesn't have what you might call a modern industrial base. It has some very good scientists. It has some brilliant scientists, by the way, and has a lot of clever people, by the way. (laughs) Don't (laughs) underestimate that. It's still an urban population. There's much sophistication about Russia, actually, going back even to the Soviet period. Nonetheless, the balance between the two has shifted so dramatically towards China. Therefore, that leaves Russia, it seems to me, in a very, very, very problematic position. Russia, after all, is, is to use a phrase. Maybe it doesn't feel like that at the moment. You know, it's a very proud country. Russians are very proud people. They've been invaded once, twice, in the in the 20th century with devastating consequences. Yeah. This is why they celebrate the Second World War so much. And and P- Putin obviously plays to that, that 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 kind of sense of you know the great patriotic war of World War II and all the rest of it. But would they therefore feel, how comfortable would they feel on in a dependency relationship with a China which 30 years ago was, you know, nowhere economically, whereas the Soviet Union was still the Soviet Union. I yeah. think they feel very, very difficult about that. Yeah. Oh, and, wow. and
0: Putin, you're right. I mean, but it goes further back for, than just the, uh, the Second World War. I mean, he has. I was listening to an interview um, with Fiona Hill, um, the, and she was saying that um, you have to look at the, the, the paintings that Putin has surrounding him when he is uh, giving talks and they're always of czars who fought off foreign invaders and expanded Russia. And the idea here is that, and this was my next question kind of, if if we try to get inside of Putin's mindset and where we see kind of this idea of this persecuted nation that it's always been kind of tried to be taken down by largely European countries and they've always had to fight back, and um, and that they, how do you think in that in that framework does he see now the liberal democracy's response to his actions? I mean this kind of crushing economic action that 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 I want to talk about a little bit later, just how just how extensive that is. But and then and then talk I think very loose talk from politicians in the West uh, talking about you know regime change and that you know somebody ought to put a bullet into uh, Putin's head and these kind of things open calls for assassination doesn't this just reinforce his most paranoid notions uh, and make this not into a war he can't, can't lose but kind of an existential risk to his
1: own person hmm. well an existential risk to his regime maybe also his person and i think um responsible politicians however it's their it's their job to lead and articulate a, a program for liberal democracies not to not to articulate assassination for any foreign leader anywhere at any time. You go down that slippery path, it's very, very dangerous indeed. And that clearly doesn't even begin to address the question, because it's not just Putin alone. But your more general point is a very well taken one. So I didn't know Fiona. I know Fiona a little bit. She's British, by the way, (laughs) pointing this out, Um, from the northeast of England, and a very nice person whom I've met a couple of times as well, and a very good writer and and, and analyst of the currency of of Russia. Yeah, she's absolutely right. You know, those interesting, those paintings. I've never met Putin. I've been in the Kremlin, but it doesn't surprise me one little bit. I always ask a tricky little naughty question here. I wonder where he keeps his picture of Stalin, because, you know, although he, you know, he he would call himself not a communist. He kind of very, very critical of the Bolsheviks and the Bolshevik Revolution. He actually says the Bolsheviks, by the way, started all the problems Russia faces today, Because they were the ones who kind of created this strange, irrelevant, uh, unnatural entity called Ukraine. Well, it's a bit more complicated. That's what he says. And we do know that, by the way, the Putin regime, in terms of its thinking of Soviet history, although it's anti-communist or non-communist, nonetheless still regards Stalin as a great Russian leader, even though, of course, he was Georgian. Um, World War II is commemorated far more in Russia today than the Bolshevik Revolution, if if the Bolshevik Revolution is even mentioned. It's mentioned in China... It's certainly not mentioned. It's certainly not meant. And that would therefore mean that it not only does he see himself in the lineage of great Russian leaders going back before the revolution, but that, that greatest of all great Russian Soviet leaders called, called Joseph Stalin. And let, let's not remember, he was after all trained in the KGB. And if you're trained in the KGB, you're not trained to love and trust people. You're trained to dislike and distrust people. You know, and therefore, distrust of the West, distrust of the outside world, distrust of liberals, distrust of the Americans is, in a sense, almost part of the DNA. Um, And I don't want to get too essentialist about that, but I think that's certainly very much part. And if you want to put it just to add a point there, Matt, and I don't want to overdo this because this, therefore, you know, are you blaming the West for this current situation? Well, no, I'm not doing that, but I'm simply stating what I think is true. Some of the things the West has done over the last 20, 20, 30 years has kind of played into the Putin narrative. You know, I mean, <laughs> one, you know, the, the West advocated strong economic reforms in the 1990s. What did that lead to? Consolidation of an oligarchic uh, kleptocratic elite on the one side and impoverishment for many millions of ordinary decent Russians on the other. Uh, Russia suffered a, basically a, a depression throughout the 1990s. He looks at NATO enlargement. Now, there's a wider and more complicated debate to be had about that, but from Russia's perspective, not from mine or from the point of view of what is historically true or not true, he kind of looks at NATO enlargement. It's kind of closer and closer and closer towards us. Didn't, didn't they say Georgia and Ukraine can... Can join back in 2008-2009. Was that a wise thing to do? I don't think it was. I think NATO enlargement has gone far enough, but that's my view. And I don't think that's the reason why Putin's doing what he's doing. Nonetheless, he can say, well, that's what you did. And by the way, remember Libya. Can we not forget it? You know, the West, or at least at this time, the British and the the French went in with Obama's backroom support, so to speak, leading from behind. They went into Libya. What did they do? They said they were going to just do a humanitarian intervention; it brought about regime change. One final little point here, Matt. I was told by somebody who knows what's going on inside Russia very close. He's not close to Putin, obviously, but he does speak. He said, "Actually, Putin is very often mentioned, and I, I can't, I can't verify it. It's very often mentioned. Look what happened to Gaddafi."
0: I was just going to add to that, supposedly, and I have we have no way of verifying this, but I was told that um, that Putin watched the video of. Qaddafi's uh, uh, assassination, or killing,
1: over and over and over again. Yeah, no, I've heard that too. What it tells him is that, in essence, you can't trust the West. Under no circumstances can... And by the way, he looks at the so-called Orange Revolution in Ukraine a few years ago, said, who was fermenting that? You know, who was, who was behind all that? So therefore, he has that image, which goes right back and deep into Russian history, uh, although he's taken it to a new height, I must say. The Tsars of the 19th century, after all, regarded themselves as Europeans. You know, St. Petersburg was a European city. Go there, it's a European city. You know, the Russian elite spoke French. <laughs> you know, I mean the Russian royal family was after all partly spawned by Queen Victoria. You know, so it wasn't exactly they were out there, you know, beyond, 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 beyond Europe. They were integrated to Europe. Putin now has taken this anti-Westernism, therefore. To a much greater height than i've ever seen before the only parallel i could think of basically is stalin yeah uh, even, even though stalin was a communist and putin certainly is not
0: no uh, well true so they, i mean they, they, there is this thread of this anti-westernism but i also think that it's a you know people are saying there is this massive miscalculation about how the west would respond and obviously there is a mass miscalculation in a sense that it did respond differently than i think I think almost anybody can come to the conclusion that he didn't think that it would respond this way. But I must say that the West didn't think that we would respond this way. And what's been really interesting to me is see the the emergence of kind of this idea of the importance of individuals in, in history rather than these kind of systematic forces. So we obviously have Putin there, and what Putin is is, is this kind of this very uh, hierarchical structure, what Putin decides goes. But in the West, we get this kind of interesting thing. How many people knew about Ukraine before? If you would have said Dumbass to somebody three months ago, nobody would have known. And And we get this situation where somehow he invades and the West, whether it's, Online, whether it's the result of kind of the first fully online war, what, whatever happens, it's kind of the West has, has surprised itself, I think, in its degree of unification and, 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 the, and the willingness and the quickness of act. At the same time, this was partly a function of Zelensky. And I can remember reading a New York Times article a week before, the, two weeks before the invasion, saying Zelensky is a leader over his head, in over his head. He doesn't know what he's doing. Um, He's, uh, you know, this former actor, and he was an anti-establishment politician, and isn't it too bad that uh, Ukraine doesn't have a decent leader? I'm glad I didn't write that two weeks before the invasion. (laughs) But the idea is that who would have predicted that this person would become this inspirational leader to not only their people, but kind of almost shame the West. Say, okay, West, you say this is what you stand for. This is what's happening. And how and, and and the kind of the importance of these key people. I mean, imagine if Zelensky would have been a leader who did leave and set up a kind of exile government somewhere in Poland. Uh, let's say that um, let's say that that he didn't do that. If he left, maybe the the, the fighting in Ukraine isn't as intense. Maybe if the fighting in Ukraine isn't as intense, we don't have the suffering. Without the suffering, you don't have the kind of moral panic on the on the West side that you get to response. It doesn't kind of get us to this place. But it, it is, it's is—it's interesting to me, at least when you're close up to history, maybe mm. the roles of the people involved seem really, really big. Maybe when they write the history 100 years from now, what was happening, mm. um, maybe it'll all be systematic factors mm. and NATO expansion, mm. et cetera, et cetera. But are yeah. you struck by how important the individuals have been?
1: A, a number of great points there, Matt, and we could again take this for hours and hours. On Zelensky, i watched with great, closeness the house of commons debate yesterday it wasn't a debate so Liansky came on made the speech in ukrainian got translated not very good ukrainian i'm told his russian is much much better and the atmosphere in the house is uh, something i've never seen it was not only full of people right up to the rafters there was an atmosphere that i haven't seen whatever well, to be perfectly honest with you So there's absolutely no doubt that Zelensky's decision to stay has struck a very big chord in in many countries around the world, particularly in the West. And, of course, in Britain, there's another parallel to this. You know, during, World, and I'm I'm not going to make silly parallels, but here's one to work with, Matt, at least think about why it touched a certain nerve, raw nerve in Britain, when the king and the queen decided to stay in 1939 40 and not going to exile in Canada, as they were often advised to do by their people. Again, this I know this from my parents. You know, this was almost like a turning point moment. It didn't change the balance of military forces on the ground. You know, there, you know, there's still a very large number of German paratroopers out there ready to invade. But I agree with you entirely. And, you know, cometh the time, cometh the person. I mean, remember that Churchill, and again, I'm not making silly parallels between Churchill and Zelensky, but you kind of hinted at it. You know, Churchill was almost a a dead duck politician before the war. You know, I mean, he was a a brilliant man in many ways. He had an extraordinarily interesting history, you know, in South Africa. You know, one of the leading politicians of his day. But by the mid-1930s, they regarded him as, oh well, it's Churchill. You know, he's always going on about these sorts of things. Just ignore him. Cometh the time, cometh the person. And Zelensky has stood up and and passed the test. Uh, And we will have to wait and see how that, that continues. But you're quite right. But I'd also had two other things here. Matt, which is actually, there's an international civic public opinion out there, which has mobilised. You know, in the, in the age of the image, what do we see? We see millions, literally millions now, women and children fleeing in terror from their homes, living in, you know, subways, having to get out, going across the border under the most appalling circle. Those images will stay with people longer than any words. And, and the numbers are just extraordinarily. And in a way, that has also mobilized public opinion. The second thing I'd say is this. there's very and Take take Britain as an example, but this is equally true for the United States and for most countries in, in the European Union. There's very large numbers of people living there now who come from East Central Europe, um, not, not just Ukrainians. By the way, quite a lot of Russians too, by the way. We need to talk about Russia too, and Rush, Russian public opinion, because I'm fairly certain that there's very large numbers of Russians were are very unhappy with this particular situation at the moment. I think we need to bring them into the conversation. But you just take the Polish community in this country, who I've got to know quite well over the last few years since they started arriving in very large numbers, and I'm very glad they're here, and I hope they stay in spite of Brexit. But nonetheless, nonetheless, it's been remarkable to see the Polish community in this country, and I'm sure this is true right across the world, mobilising masses of support. For for Ukraine and for Ukrainians, you know they're, they're next to each other. A lot of Ukrainians work in Poland. That I think has played a very very big role. And I think it's probably true too of all Europeans. There's a it's I've been absolutely uh, knocked back, and, and indeed in some ways heartened by by people responding in a very deep and profound way at human suffering. And I just don't think this is just propaganda. It, it's real. It means something to ordinary people because they they watch these poor people you know, trying to get out one and a half to two million refugees, and they think, "Uh, that's me, that could be me, but for the grace of God. And I think that's also made a huge difference, as well as the leadership demonstrated by Zelensky as well.
0: And I think maybe this is some of, I mean, it, it feeds into this miscalculation, because I think that Putin probably was focused on how democracies can be weak, in that I think that he, his experience was. If I do something that the West doesn't like, poor them, they get they make a lot of noise, they put on some sanctions, and after a year, they crawl back because they need our stuff. And they're interested in making money, and they're interested in material goods, and they're kind of morally corrupt, and they, and they aren't going to do this. So I think that he thought that even if the governments wanted to do something, they'd be constrained by their publics because... Who would have thought that people would say, "Okay, yeah, I'm willing to have my gas prices go up by fifty percent. I'm willing to have uh, no, you know, my food prices go up." I think that he thought that the political, the the pressure in democracies would work in his favor. And I think what he didn't count on is actually it can constrain states in a couple different ways. It can constrain them in that they have to pay attention to how, let's say, economic sanctions are going to hurt their own citizens, but also the the attitude of the community. The outrage, the the feeling of the community, a politician that stood up right now and said, look, Russia has legitimate concerns, we need to build, they would be it's political suicide. So so it's it's I think that he in in some ways democracies do have this limitation in a sense. At least it seems like to me that maybe they can't that, you know, if you ask the average British person or the average European, yes. We can do something uh, in Ukraine, we can help Ukraine, but that's going to lead to, you know, 500 more euros a month that you're going to have to spend, should we do it? And maybe a lot of people would say no, but at a certain point, as you said, the kind of global civic mindedness turns to a point where democratic states are constrained, even if they wanted to deescalate. And it's another thing that makes me a little bit worried. I I don't know. What do you think?
1: Well, you, you make, again, some great points. And again, this is something we could debate. But let me just make two or three quickies. Russia had become, since, uh, since the late 90s, you know, a petrostate. state, a lot of money, a lot of money came out of Russia. Much of it came to London. Many, much of it went to Switzerland. Some of it went to other parts of the world. Um, there was always that pre-existing long-term energy dependency that some European countries had on Russia. Russia was still a big market, you know. You know how many uh, hamburger places are now closing down all over Russia. You know, I mean that's not that's not an economic reason for doing. You know, but you, you get the point. You know, Russia had become, even if it's small, it's only one point three percent of the world economy, and it's largely dependent on energy for its budget and all the rest of it. Nonetheless, you know, it's not it's not an irrelevant economy. It's the size of Italy, you know, something like that. You know, that's not insignificant, and it had deep Deep, deep links into, into, into Europe and indeed into London, as it has been pointed out many, many, many times over.
0: And particularly to Germany at a business level.
1: And Germany as well. And Germany was always seen as, if I might put it like this, it's not, not a criticism of Germany, it's simply a statement of fact, you know, seen as a soft touch. German public opinion had a kind of an ambiguity. Second World War memories, wanted to be nice to Russia. Angela Merkel, a very fine German leader, nonetheless, saw it all largely in commercial and mercantile terms rather than in political terms. Don't push the Russians on human rights and all the rest. That that was the view of her. But where are we now? You know, I mean, that, that sense that Putin had that material interests of the West, particularly of the European, not just, not so much the United States, as Joe Biden very honestly put, put it out yesterday, you know, even if we cancel oil imports from Russia, now it makes no difference to us or gas, but it will make a difference to the Europeans because they're much more dependent. And I think Putin played on that and assumed basically, you know, that the, the West would, would, would put economic interest over and above, taking a very tough line. And again, I think he also underestimated to um, public opinion within the West and because and, and, he doesn't have that in Russia. Or he it doesn't impact on him as much as it would in a Western liberal democracy. I think the other point you make, however, is his vision of what the West had become, what liberalism had done, it had undermined its moral fiber, its strength. You know, Putin has put forward a very traditional view of what a society is like, you know, and he thinks that's the kind of norm. And he looks at the West with feminist and you know, you know, same-sex men, all the rest of it. He kind of sees this as a mark of degeneracy. I've read some of these speeches he's made. It's kind of almost a saying to us, oh, my God, you've really, you're in decline. And I think, again, he's miscalculated on that because, you know, there's nothing, there's only one thing that is more likely. <laughs> there's no, no, no thing like a genuine threat than to, to bring the West together. And I think that's been a massive miscalculation. He thought he could divide NATO. He's made NATO. He thought he could play on German economic needs. The opposite has occurred. He thought that London's dependency on, on, on Russian money and finance and all the rest of it, even that is changing, too. So he's miscalculated badly about the West.
0: Yeah. And, and in a way that I think it would have been very hard to predict this would happen, which which brings me. I mean, I, I want to talk about the economic impact and the and the um, to this because it, it it goes to the points we've just been talking about. One of the things I've been struck by is the the kind of massive nature of the sanctions, particularly the movements of the central banks to impound the foreign currencies, the foreign reserves. This is kind of the nuclear option, right this will this will bring this will bring huge pressure and in the next month or two this is this will do absolutely massive damage to the Russian economy. Um, at least every economist I read says that. In, in addition to this now you, you have, so you have these state run sanctions, but now what's really interesting is Russia's almost being a kind of victim of cancer uh, cancel culture in that now you have a myriad of different organizations that could legally do business in, in Russia, but they feel the need whether it's uh, ESG, good governance, uh, pressure from their shareholders, uh, pressure from their stakeholders, Wanting to uh, kind of signal that they're doing the right thing, whatever it is, you get these massive numbers of companies leaving and canceling contracts, not because of the sanctions. So, this is on top already of these sanctions. To the extent that these are, and they will be, brutal, brutal on the Russian people, eventually, this is going to end sooner, probably rather than later. At what point do you think? Is the line crossed between kind of economic action and a perception of an act of war? So, for example, I could surround a city and not let it, let any food in, and if the people started to die from hunger, this would be seen as as a violent act in a sense. At what sense? At what point do we say, or does more importantly, or more frighteningly, does Putin say, "This is now an act of war that you're doing to us"? This is it. You have crossed the line.
1: Mm. Mm. Well, Matt, it's a very sober question, and I wish I could come up with a, you know, cheerful answer to that one. Um, interesting to use the notion of cancel culture, too. it? because often it's applied against the left, uh, or, you know, who are constantly, we are told, cancelling things in universities. I haven't seen much of it myself at the LSE, but that's me. Um, it's a very, very difficult question, Matt. You know, I, I have a great love of Russia. I really have. The Russian literature, its history, it's such a fascinating country. I've known many Russians over, over the time, and I still know a lot of Russians today. And the extraordinary people have been through extraordinary histories. And I really, and I said, I think I hinted at this at the very beginning of my observations, we've got to make a big distinction. And it may not be an easy one to make, but I want to make it, and re-emphasize it, and re it time and time and time again, the difference between a regime and the ordinary Russian people. The ordinary Russian people have suffered under Putin. I know it's a rhetorical thing to say, but they're the ones who have borne the brunt of Putinism. Um, They're the ones whose assets have been stripped. They're the ones who have seen massive billionaire kleptocrats running the country with all of the, not just privilege, but absurd forms of wealth. And they are the ones, you know, who, who we have to feel the most sorry for and indeed express solidarity with as well. So we're not, we have to make absolutely unambiguously clear that this is about Putin and his regime. Nonetheless, uh, I think as you've hit, and I've been talking to people about the role of sanctions recently, Matt, if you want sanctions to hurt, they will hurt. And who will they hurt? They won't just hurt the elite. You know, they're going to hurt ordinary Russians over time. And, you know, that, the worry about that, however, is this. A, will it produce that backlash you've already mentioned? I Putin will say, well, you've effectively declared war on me, so I might as well treat this as war. Therefore, that leads to escalation, which I'm not sure that's what we want to see. Even if an easy peace is not going to be signed very quickly soon, we don't want to escalate the situation beyond that which we cannot control. The other thing I, I worry about, too, is that will Putin, therefore, benefit from this insofar as he can blame the West? We get back to the theme we touched on earlier on. Somebody was talking to me about this yesterday. I think it was from within Russia or from outside a Ukrainian friend of mine, you know, who's a very balanced, kind of middle of the road liberal guy, no longer lives in Ukraine, but his children still do. And he was saying to me, look, the worry is going to be that Putin will simply say, well, blame the West. Just blame the West. And therefore, instead of holding him responsible for having initiated this, 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 this war, they might increasingly hold the West responsible. For there are, and of course, as we said earlier on, Putin will play that narrative right up to the very bitter end. I don't know what alternative we have to sanctions or, or indeed to giving military support to Ukrainians. It looks like it's, it's a, it's a no brainer, frankly, given what Putin has done and how the Russian army has been acting within Ukraine. I just don't know what else you can do. You're exactly right, it's a tragedy. There'll be a huge
0: economic price to pay. I think it's also a moral defeat for the, the R- Russian people. I think that the Russians that I know feel embarrassed and and distraught, but the chance of them having this be blamed on the West, this is, I think, a real thing. And I think that also, as you said, military aid, uh, again, things are in flux. We're recording this on Wednesday. It's gonna be uh, broadcast on Friday, but who knows what will change since then? I mean. If I'm Russia, I'm not sure. If if you're on the Polish border and you hand another person an anti-aircraft uh, uh, weapon, and they just happen to pull the trigger 20 minutes later, but you're the one that give them the, you know, so how how are you not complicit in the act of the death of that Russian soldier? And I'm not I'm not saying that that's not what we ought to do at all, but I think that these lines that we draw about what's acceptable and unacceptable. I, I think what I, my worry is that Putin gets to draw those lines, not us. And even if we wanted to pa- call off the sanctions at this time, it's not clear if the government said, look, this is getting dangerous, we need to pull back the sanctions. I'm not sure democratic states could. And I certainly know that they couldn't force companies that have done this voluntarily to change tack. So who do, you, who do you call to stop the McDonald's? sanctions you know you yeah who do you call to stop you know these kind of things so i i i think that we're as you said we're entering this v- very very unsteady time and it, it's uh, i guess it's a bit banal to say but very very dangerous
1: well you know everything i've said so far i think matt leads us in that direction i i don't think an immediate peace is possible for the ukrainians point of view it may not even be something that they want because you know the more in, in more pain they can inflict on the Russian army, the more likely there might be some deal which, which comes at the end of it, but only after the pain, which again is a very sad and tragic thing to say. But you know we are where we are and the responsibility for this, although you can go back in time and history and find all sorts of deep reasons as to why we are where we are. As the Chinese love to say, is very complex. Well, it is very complex, but it was Putin in the end who made the decision to invade Ukraine. Once that happened, I have to say that a feeling in the pit of my stomach got very, very unpleasant. You know, it just sank. I thought, oh, my God. I'm OMG, I just couldn't believe that this has been done because I had a feeling, I suppose, based on 40, 50 years of trying to study the world in all of its complexities. We're entering into a very dark moment, and we don't know where the exit is from this. Yeah, And that's yeah. where I think we are at the moment man.
0: Yeah, very scary. Okay, I'm going to get you out of this with this last question. Um, you know, Triumph was built on this idea of globalization in, in, the, in the 90s, early 2000s. You know, I can remember helping to put the program together. The hope was kind of globalization, you know, would lead to countries becoming more and more interdependent economically, increased human interactions, visits, knowledge, cultural exchanges, conflict would be less and less likely, because, and the arc of history would kind of bend towards liberal globalism if not, uh, you know, kind of outright liberal democracy. And then the financial crisis hit and then, uh, and, and it looked like the Western model f- became less attractive and at the very least kind of flawed that needed fixed. Then COVID exposed countries to kind of problems of highly complex interdependent supply chains, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it, and it kind of highlighted the vulnerabilities of interdependence. And then, and then you have the kind of Whole story play out in Ukraine, and and Putin really saying, actually, the world can't live without me. I'm going to use this interdependence uh, that there that it actually provides me space because they won't because I'm so integrated into the West. They need my stuff so much. This opens up space for me to act in ways, it, it exercise my sovereignty in ways that I couldn't otherwise do. Um, and then and then what happens is he gets slammed by these sanctions. So it's kind of a, a, a counterpunch by the, by, by the uh, kind of uh, neoliberal globalists saying, look, you, you, but we can cut you off. And if we really decide to cut you off from the global system, you can't survive. So I guess the question here is, do you think that interdependence creates more or less space for states to act?
1: Well, I'm bound to come up with a very LSC English answer and say both. <laughs> okay. Um, because I think it does, you know, I mean, you know, it does draw people together. It creates, you know, even at a very minor level, really a small level, right? not minor, Triumph could never be minor, but, you know, it brings together all well, your great students over many years, many of them Russian too. I've yep. met many of them yep. over many years. And let's hope uh, our friends and colleagues from Russia continue to come to Triumph and continue to come and study at the LSE or come to study at HSC or over in New York, you know, more than welcome to do so. This is not a war against them, and this is not directed against them, and nor should they feel it is. And we have to be as welcoming as we can to all those. That they don't feel they're being vilified for, by reason of what their their, their appalling regime has done in, in their name. I think that is very important. Of course, interdependence, you know, it does face both ways. We know that. Right? You know, even globalisation faces both ways. It creates immense wealth. It creates immense possibilities. It opens up societies. It allows us to travel all over the world, which may not be a good thing from climate change, but there you go. Uh, You know, it brings tourism to millions, to to lots of countries and therefore raises their standards. It allows people to repatriate what they earn in this country, send it back to countries like Somalia and all all sorts of things like that. It's also drawn China into the world economy and made it rich or richer, which is a good thing. It's drawn India in. That's a good thing. You know, so overall, I kind of defend globalization. The only problem is, is the model of globalization. I think we've got man. I think that's a, that's a larger debate to be having, but maybe the model we've been working with has not always been the best or the most, the most inclusive. As one of the great directors of the LSE, Ralph Garandos, said many, many years ago, you know, we've got to be careful with globalization. If it just gives a ladder to the top for a few, but a ladder to, you know, a snake going down for the many, that's not really going to be something you know, that's going to be desperately attractive. But the truth of the matter is, Matt, at the moment, although Putin may say what he says and tries to say over, over, you need us just as much as we, we need you, etc., etc., etc. The fact tri- the of the matter is he's made another miscalculation. <laughs> you know, we may need Russian oil, we may need Russian gas, or some countries will need it both. And that's going to be a very <laughs> difficult one, by the way, to sanction. That's going to be a much more difficult job to cut cut Europe off. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, who controls the international financial system? It isn't Russia. You know, Who, who deter, which, which denominated currency is the dominant currency in the world today? It's the dollar, not the ruble. You know, I mean, you know, so it, it's been a, in a funny way, Matt, and it's been my last point, Ria, and I'm sure you'd like to bring me to an end as well. The position of Russia is, is, is having said what I've said, Russia's position is very vulnerable. It doesn't look like that at the moment. You know, It's a small economy. Its population is stagnating. It has no major industries or bre- global brands. You know, it, it, it has very limited soft power, although it tries to promote its own image through RT and Sputnik, but with some degree of success, but not massive. It's in a very weak and vulnerable position. And perhaps, although this is more an analytical point, not one about whether what Putin's doing is right or wrong, it's clearly wrong. But he's acting from a position of real weakness, I think. But giving the impression he's strong. And that's my kind of sense of what's tragic about this as well. not tragic for Putin, but tragic for Ukraine, that a very weak regime, with a very paranoid leader, I wouldn't call him mad. I think I would think there's a paranoid aspect to it. He's acting in a way to mobilize and utilize the, the only assets and power he's got which is military power. Once you think the power grows out the barrel of a gun, as Chairman Mao once put it, basically you you don't have real power. What you've got then is simply brute force and brute force is not the same thing as power, but nonetheless in the short and medium term is doing massive, massive damage and could indeed inflict even wider political damage on the rest of the world.
0: Well, I think that's a somber but good place to end. So Mick, thank you for joining me. No doubt, uh, we'll keep an eye on this evolving situation. I appreciate your uh, wise insights as always. uh, And thank you for your support uh, for Triumph and beyond.
1: Thank you very much, Matt. And and good luck to all, all our Triumph members out there.
0: You've been listening to Triumph Connects, a podcast for the Triumph community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.